I'm going to be sharing today some work from, I'm currently an MSW student as Vasuki shared, um, but I, I just finished uh, my MA in 2020 in religious studies. So that's some of the work that I'll be sharing and I'll be trying to put it into conversation um, with the mental health work um, that I'm doing currently in my MSW. Um, so this is yeah new and emerging and kind of building off of old, um, previous work that I have done. So I'll start today off with a land acknowledgement, and this comes from the folks at Tamil Archives, so shout out Vasuki. Um, yeah, I just wanted to share that I, I work on Turtle Island. I acknowledge that this land has been stolen from its traditional caretakers and acknowledge my role as a settler in continuing the legacy of colonial violence. I wish for this acknowledgement not to simply be a statement, but one followed by actions that support Indigenous communities. The continued use of frameworks founded in colonization and occupation reinforce this violence every day in both our homelands and the lands we settled on. Um, so I think this kind of provides a helpful and important framework for the work I'm going to be talking about as I'm talking about uh, folks who have been colonized uh, and they are now settled on stolen and colonized lands. So yeah, really keeping that in mind as I, as I continue today. Um, so the title for this talk comes from Franz Fanon. Um, so he says, imperialism leaves behind germs of rot, which we must clinically detect and remove from our land, but from our minds as well. Um, so I think, yeah, I think that provides, I think what I'll be doing today, what I know I'll be doing today uh, is maybe detecting some of the, the rot that imperialism has um, implanted into the lands and the minds of colonized folks. Um, so to begin, my research aims to weave together uh, the histories of Punjabi Sikhs and more widely now South Asian immigrants in Canada. And uh, particularly I'm thinking about problems with alcohol. So I'll try to make this clear for you as it is for me, the boundaries of which I guess will be revealed um, throughout my presentation. And I look forward to hearing everyone's thoughts, comments and questions. Um, so uh, in my work, I uh, spoke to second generation Sikh Canadians and I asked them if they thought there was a problem with alcohol in the Punjabi Sikh uh, Canadian diaspora. And if there was a problem, why was there a problem? So I guess before I get into what I found, I'd like to just uh, uh, like be clear that I'm here using the term Punjabi Sikhs. Um, to refer to those who self-identify as Sikh and they understand Punjab to be the cultural and spiritual homeland of, of Sikhi. So this doesn't imply a birth origin correlation. So oftentimes um, folks who are Punjabi and who are Sikh, uh, they lump those two terms together. So they think, so oftentimes uh, we're raised to believe that to be Punjabi means you're uh, automatically Sikh, but uh, Sikhs actually come um, from a wide variety of spaces. Um, but here I'm I spoke to folks who are Punjabi and who identify um, Punjab to be the birthplace of Sikhi. Um, so I conducted interviews with second generation Sikh Canadians. Second generation was defined as individuals born in Canada to at least one parent who had immigrated to Canada. Um, folks simply had to self-identify as sick. When I asked about levels of adherence, usually I asked for like a scale of one to 10, because that's often uh, like an easy measure for folks to know. Folks said 
um, they identified as sick uh, from a range of like two out of 10 to seven or eight out of 10. Um, the diversity of understanding, lived experiences, and social locations of my interviewees gave insight into the complexities of the community. However, it's important to note that all but two of the folks that I spoke to belong to the oppressor upper caste of Juts. Um, so Juts are typically farmers and landowners. And all, um, all of my uh, interviewees had or were in the process of obtaining a university degree. So both of those speak to the caste and social privileges uh, of the folks that I spoke to. Um, so the ways in which they engaged with their Sikhi or their religion, um, their Punjabi identity or their cultural identity uh, and their worldviews illuminated complex ways of understanding what problems with alcohol look like within Punjabi, Punjabi Sikh communities. Uh, so I also, I guess, before moving on, I'd like to acknowledge that I also am a member of the uh, oppressor upper caste uh, of the Juts. So my family owns land in Punjab and we continue to benefit um, from that here in the diaspora. And keeping this, this like framework in mind, uh, I like to acknowledge that this doesn't mean that I am the holder of knowledge or the creator of knowledge, although um, often Jets are positioned and have the power to do so. So they have the power to create the knowledge. And I would argue that Punjabi culture, maybe as we know it today is very much Jet Punjabi culture. Um, but this does mean that this positionality does color and influence the work that I do. Um, so I'd like to, I, I'd like to preface what I'm about to share, just keeping that in mind. So why do problems with alcohol exist in Punjabi Sikh communities in the land now called Canada? So overwhelmingly, the folks that I spoke to said that there was a problem with alcohol in the community. Um, when I looked to other research, it pointed to the liberal attitudes toward alcohol consumption in the countries that Punjabi Sikhs relocate to, coupled with the already acceptable status alcohol has in Punjab. Um, Folks pointed, or other research pointed to stress related to acculturation. I would reframe that to assimilation. Um, in investigating the second generation in particular, it's been noted that members of the community may resort to alcohol uh, or drugs to cope with the tension that they may experience as a result of being overwhelmed by living in two disparate cultures. Furthermore, both in Punjab and in the diaspora, alcohol plays a vital role in the socialization of Punjabi males. So they internalize the cultural, the cultural belief that alcohol consumption is indeed an aspect of their masculinity. So alcohol consumption as a part of Punjabi culture and as a part of Punjabi masculinity can be seen most overtly through Bhangra music. Uh, and this includes songs that glorify alcohol consumption along with violence and the Jet upper caste Punjabi lifestyle. Um, and lastly, some, uh, some research did point to trauma and coping with trauma uh, and using alcohol uh, as a coping mechanism. So oftentimes folks I spoke to pointed to these rationales for why um, problems with alcohol exist, particularly in Punjabi communities. Um, so overwhelmingly folks said there's a problem because there is something within Punjabi culture that promotes it and that Sikhi or Sikhism is kind of this antithesis um, to Punjabi culture in that it prohibits alcohol. So most folks thought that the Sikh religion uh, prohibits alcohol consumption. 
Um, however, alcohol prohibition is only detailed, if we look at what, what Saki says, uh, alcohol prohibition is only detailed in non-canonical texts for Amritari or baptized Sikhs. So the Guru Granth Sahib is the sacred spiritual, spiritual text of the Sikhs. Uh, it's also referred to as Gurbani or Bani, and it doesn't function as a rule book and therefore is not in the business of providing prohibitions. Um, there's no direct reference to the prohibition of alcohol in the Guru Granth Sahib. Uh, individuals on either side of this debate derive arguments from the Guru Granth Sahib, but as the interpretations are quite ambiguous and diverse, uh, there's no clear uh, decision that can be made. There are many metaphorical references to alcohol in the Guru Granth Sahib. Folks who argue that it is prohibited often uh, point to the Rahit Mariada or the Code of Conduct um, for the Khalsa or the baptized way of life. Um, and other and folks who uh, maybe critique this idea that the uh, Rahit Mariada says that alcohol should be prohibited or its consumption should be prohibited. Um, they often point to the idea that uh, or the notion that this this code of conduct, this code of discipline was created during the colonial period. So it was really a response um, to that specific period in time is very, and was very influenced um, by the colonial era. So I suppose um, in speaking to folks, there was this real dichotomy of religion and culture. Um, so I was very interested in kind of in understanding these categories and the things that we put in these categories and kind of these like very fine lines we create around these categories. Um, so my work really, I guess, the theoretical underpinnings of it was really thinking about what is religion and what is culture. Um, so I guess in starting with what is religion, uh, I think popularly in Sikhi, it's understood that alcohol consumption is prohibited. So I, I was thinking about how and why do we currently understand Sikhi in the ways that we understand it? Why is there this like general consensus that alcohol is prohibited? Um, and how did we kind of get there? So I would say um, we could start with translations. Uh, articulated best by Dr. Nikki Gunanthar Gaur Singh, translations of the Guru Granth Sahib um, impose dualisms and divisions and reduce and distort the original as though it was an entirely alien tongue. Of note is the particularly detrimental use of the terms God, Lord, and soul. These terms are inappropriate for the Sikh context as they are laden with Judeo-Christian connotations. So who is doing the translation? If the anthropological translator has final authority in determining the, the subject's meaning, it is then the translator who becomes the real author of the subject. So in this view, cultural translation is a matter of determining implicit meaning, not the meanings that the native speaker acknowledges in their speech. So I guess to word that differently, um, who in, in the translation process, the real author becomes the person who is doing the translating. Uh, and generally speaking, if um, a text is being translated into English, um, that would be done by someone who is coming from a Judeo-Christian, a Western, a white worldview. So, and uh, religion, I guess I was curious about the category of religion and when that came to be. So religion as a distinct conceptual category emerged during the 19th century in European thought. And prior to encounters with European thought, uh, no exact equivalent for the term religion existed. So after European thought became uh, 
hegemonic and internalized by the British colonies, including India, the term religion took on a character as if it had been part and parcel of the traditions for a long time. And that it has become, and now it has become a matter of historical fact that Indian religions have always existed. Therefore, what we contemporarily or currently understand of uh, Sikhi has been heavily influenced by European understandings of religion. And of course, I'm not arguing that Sikhi is a construct or that it's yeah, created, um, but rather that the lived expression of Sikhi is not a fixed entity, but is influenced by many political and historical events. And then I kind of moved to the category of religion um, and decided to think about the creation of this category. Um, so if we go back to this argument around why there's a problem with alcohol, uh, if, why is there a problem with alcohol? If Sikhi is so anti-alcohol, then it must be Punjabi culture. But here I'm curious in thinking, what is culture? How have we come to know culture in the way that we currently do? So to understand how colonialism has influenced the definition of culture, we can examine how colonial powers created popular narratives, depicting communities as inherently backwards or traditional, placing them in opposition to the advanced colonial way of life. However, this assignment of certain characteristics as natural or inherent has been contested, among others, by Hamani Banerjee, who argues that there is nothing natural or primordial about cultural identities, religious or otherwise. So using culture as an explanation benefits colonial systems. So us, um, and by us, I mean like uh, Punjabi Sikh communal us. Um, so when we blame Punjabi cultures, this benefits colonial systems as it allows for forgetting social relations and political identities that are complex and never fixed. So communities are then understood as unified, as naturally existing groups, rather than as a product of different political forces interacting over time. And then when we come into the diaspora, uh, we embrace and kind of romanticize this the past. Um, and this is done both by colonial governments and by colonized bodies in attempts to resist assimilation and in attempting to gain power within the diaspora, within this limited space allotted, the colonized adopt the cultural differences that the state uses to other them. Um, so those become a part of our identities and we use them to create a collective identity, one that is often in opposition to Western culture. Uh, and this is done, she argues, in order to seek legitimacy. So the social spaces of countries that colonized people migrate from or flee as refugees, they become a state of mind rather than a place of history. And the complex historical struggles are reduced to merely static traditions of a backwards people. Um, I, it's, uh, in, her, in her words, it sounds uh, like an engagement in a collective forgetting of the politics and the history and the shaping that, was, were, that were done in the, in the spaces that um, migrants come from. In the contemporary colonial, sorry, the contemporary Canadian context, uh, culture has been used as a replacement for arguments that were previously rooted in racial differences. So Shireen Razak's discourse on the culturalization of racism, which I'll get into a little bit more as I speak about um, culture and mental health practice. So her discourse around the culturalization of racism illuminates ways in which racism is perpetuated through a discussion of culture. So instead of speaking of a racialized person's race, the conversation and the focus has changed um, and focus is placed on, on one's culture. 
So I'm not arguing here that alcohol consumption is not a part now of um, what we understand as Punjabi Sikh or Punjabi culture, but rather that it's important to understand what narratives individuals are engaging with and perpetuating when they blame the culture for why problems with alcohol exist. And I'll share a quote um, that one of the folks that I um, chatted with said, she shares, I feel, I feel really bad for boys that are born here because I feel like they grew up in these house, households with things like hypertoxic masculinities, alcohol abuse, all of this, that they kind of absorb that. And I feel like they're suffering. I feel like the boys, they see themselves in their fathers. So I think this generation, like it actually makes me sad at how much alcohol abuse, excuse me, I see in second generation Punjabi boys. And their problems are so much more different because if for the parents, because if for the parents' generations, if it was the trauma of migration, for them, the second generation, it's the trauma of being raised in an immigrant household. So if we internalize the ideas of what religion is and what religion says and what culture is and what culture says, and we don't illuminate the various powers impacting these understandings and definitions, we fail to engage with the complexities of individuals. It's not simply religion, it's not simply culture. Um, well, I guess what I'm trying to do is unpack what both of those mean, that these memories and traumas are intimately part of uh, the descendants' makeup. They're inherited through generations. The methods by which ancestors have understood and coped with these traumas are learned and inherited as well. Uh, in some cases, passively, in others, actively. The intergenerational inheritance of memory, trauma, and coping mechanisms is evident through these conversations that I've had with second-generation folks, um, a group who has been displaced from the homeland but still holds intimate ties to it. Um, Sisiki and Punjabi culture aren't monolithic entities that are simply anti or pro-alcohol, but are heuristic categories, categories within which we can explore. Um, and I'll end this section with this quote. So there's nothing natural about religious or cultural identities. These categories are constructed by, deeply rooted in, and impacted by external forces. Questioning the natural status of these labels does not imply that they are invented categories or that there are not commonalities within the group. Rather, it is to say that the homogenization centers some narratives and erases others. These hardened identities privilege certain discourses over others. And even, I, yeah, I guess reflecting on this now, I guess those certain discourses are powerful and oppressive discourses. Um, so individuals are seen as fitting into categories such as Punjabi or Sikh or not fitting into these categories. And certain issues are simply understood as Punjabi issues without moving beyond these essentialized identities. So uh, I guess in my, in my thinking and my work now as an MSW student, as someone who works directly with folks um, in, the mental health, in mental health practice, um, I, I was thinking about why this matters. Um, my rationale for moving from an MA to an MSW was to put like the theoretical into practice, to put research into practice. Um, so I was thinking about why this matters, what does this look like in practice? How is culture used in practice? Am I just, yeah, kind of sitting in my office making these theoretical claims and thinking deeply about this category of religion, this category of culture, or does this have an impact on mental health work? Uh, and it does. So uh, how is culture understood in mental health practice? Uh, and I think this 
deeply relates to the work of, the, of Shireen Razak that I shared around the culturalization of racism. Um, so culture is sometimes understood as the cause of shame and stigma towards why someone may not access services or understand mental health challenges more broadly. So why do individuals in Punjabi communities not access supports for problems with alcohol? Uh, it's sometimes relegated as intrinsic to the culture of shame and stigma, and we forget to interrogate the system. So it must be something about being inherent, it must be something inherent to being Punjabi that is stopping folks um, from accessing service. They're just, this shame and stigma is so internalized, but we're not interrogating where this shame and stigma is coming from. Culture is also seen as a marker of difference, a separate, but also a replacement of race, as I mentioned before. So it's, uh, culture is used as a replacement of race as the preferred trope of difference. So stereotypes that are, that used to come from uh, yeah, that used to come from culture, they escape the criticism that differences based on race might receive. So while interventions to be practiced upon those who have a race for their differences might be understood as inappropriate, interventions that are able, um, that are better able to be attributed to culture are made possible and acceptable. So culture as conceived of as a particular body of knowledge is often founded on stereotypes and generalities. And from this interventions are created. However, these interventions ultimately reinforce the stereotypes from which they are created. It's also important here to note that I'm not arguing that culture is always a strength, um, but it is normatively understood as a difference or a deficit or bad. So how can we rethink our approaches if we're to understand culture as a strength? So the problem is, and yeah, I need this last sentence, uh, something to unpack, uh, but the problem is conceived as the need for epistemological refinement rather than ontological scrutiny. Um, so I guess in popular discourse, the problem is seen as a need for changes in the interventions that we are applying in mental health in the field of mental health, but in actuality, it's a need for a change in language. So although um, cultural competency, there's also a shift and a move towards cultural humility and cultural safety. Uh, there's also a, a deep emphasis on cultural competency still. Um, so cultural competency is described as a commitment to preserving the dignity of the client by preserving their culture. Much attention is given to creating methods that work appropriately or sensitively with those who have culture. So the main problem is in the methods used in teaching either students or workers to become culturally competent. Modes of teaching don't allow for fully enlightening students and practitioners about the multiplicities of cultures and their various attributes. So difference or diversity linked to culture and mental health discourse doesn't describe the overall variance among cultures. It does not function neutrally, but is an identifier for those who are not normative. So culture here is not functioning uh, at neutrally. So for example, the quintessentially North American value of individual individualism and the often cited value of collectivism that is attributed to those with culture. Here, so these are kind of this, there's this dichotomy that we create, the North American value of individualism and the collectivist ideas of 
those with culture. So there, here there is a hierarchy. One of these options is correct. And from this assumption, interventions may be suggested and counter suggestions are either deemed incorrect or not even considered. So although this cultural sensitivity is an improvement on the assimilation narrative, this multiculturalist vision isn't without its problems. So a binary, a dichotomy, a hierarchy, as I just shared, is still created. There is there, there are those who are free of culture, and then there are those with culture, uh, and they are put in opposition to each other. So operating through cultural competency also obstructs the role of power and root causes are missed. Um, recently, I was a part of um, some work around CBT for South Asians. Uh, and in this process, I was asked, can CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, can it be used on South Asian populations? So I found myself in a space if I was to say no, essentially what I'm saying at the, is that there is something intrinsic, something at the DNA level that makes CBT incompatible for all South Asians. And South Asians within themselves are a huge category. Here, we're blaming the people for not being able to engage with this intervention. And we assume it must be something intrinsic to their identity, something intrinsic to being South Asian that prevents them from accessing CBT, this CBT that perhaps was never even created with them in mind, um, as opposed to interrogating the method itself. So it's not the culture that's the barrier that's preventing people from recognizing or getting help. Um, I'm arguing for a shift towards looking at the system. So why does this matter? Um, I, before I get to that, I guess, um, so most of, the work that I read is from Yusun Park. She shares, we must produce a different kind of discourse, a different means of language usage, which can be employed to address the needs of populations served without automatically attributing deficiencies to them or the issues that they confront. So it was that the, the yeah, this is the shift that's being argued for. Oh, not yet, sorry. Um, so why does this matter? Uh, through, so far, I've tried to problematize what happens when we blame culture, to think about it in a deeper way and what it looks like in practice. Um, as I continue, it would be helpful to keep in mind the ways in which culture is positioned. I'm gonna share some examples um, of how culture is used in both everyday mental health discourse and just in the everyday. Um, and then hopefully we can do some unpacking. So I'll show uh, a commercial, um, and then I'll show and go through um, some tweets from popular Instagram, like South Asian, like specifically targeting South Asian um, Instagram accounts. We'll look at, I think it's Brown Girl Therapy, um, Brown Girl Trauma. Uh, well, you'll see. And South Asian therapists. So these were these are Instagram accounts that have large followings. Uh, but we'll start with uh, a video. Oh, let me know if you can hear. And the start of the holiday season, which means it's time for family. And with family, some things never change. Like awkward side hugs with uncles. Or these plates that perfectly divide my food. Or an auntie putting her poor son on the spot. Richard, you're dancing. Mom, I'm a married man. Lily. Or getting asked about school, even though you're like 30 years old. That's a okay, example. I wouldn't trade it for the world. But in some instances, a little progress is good. Sunny, would you like some black lips? <clears throat> 
Sonia, would you also like some black label? Uh, yeah, that's right, because gone are the days of secretly drinking out of mugs, ladies. Why didn't you wear the red kurta? Hey, yeah. What we talked about. My husband can pick us on clothes. And? It is okay to have feelings. That's right. But sometimes to make progress, you have to change the game. Especially when your cousins are impressive. I'm a doctor. I'm a lawyer. But at a party, there's one label that impresses my family more than the rest. I brought this. Oh, Why can't you be like Lily? To new beginnings and to making strides, big and small. From my family to yours, happy Diwali. So just to, to quickly unpack some things that I noticed in this video. Um, there were some things at the beginning that were overtly linked to South Asian culture, the, the tray that perfectly divides your food, someone asking you about school, even though you're 30 years old. And these were directly linked to things that never change in South Asian culture and cultures that celebrate the Wali. Um, but then there's this thing that is um, unlike South Asian cultures, that is progressive. And that in includes allowing your husband to pick his own clothes, having it be okay for men to have feelings. And also, of course, openly drinking and offering drinks to men and women. So this latter culture, this more progressive culture, is something good and something to aspire to. Um, and dare I say this maybe represents the normative the normative culture that we live in, um, maybe Western culture, hegemonic culture, white culture. Um, so there is this clear positioning of hierarchies and one to aspire to and one that maybe needs to change a little bit and some progress for this one is good. Um, so I also have included... It's oh, Diwali! No. Um, so there's uh, a tweet um, from an account called South Asian Therapist. They uh, provide a great service. Uh, if you go to southasiantherapist.org, you can find a South Asian therapist um, near you. Um, so in this tweet, they're positioning, uh, I can just read it first. So white parents, if you want to do something, you must get permission from us. Brown parents, if you want to do something, you must get permission from Jaja, Jachi, Mama, Masi, Dadi, Dada, and Tommy the dog. So there, I yeah, I don't really know how much I need to unpack, but there's this clear hierarchy um, of what, this like ideal white culture and this unideal, maybe backwards needs to progress a little bit brown culture or yeah, whatever brown parents represents. Uh, and similarly, um, yes, Brown Girl Trauma, and then an individual who on Instagram, I believe, goes by Brown Girl Therapy. Uh, these accounts all target like South Asian women at the top left um, is the first line from a CTV news article in which um, they state, in many cultures around the world, mental illness is still rarely talked about. Um, and this is an article about mental health in South Asian communities. So uh, yeah, an implication that in some cultures around the world, mental health illness is never talked about, but that's very different in our context where we are progressive and we do have these conversations, um, which we all know isn't 100% the case. Um, and in this uh, tweet from Brown Girl Trauma, uh, children of immigrants carry the emotional burden of dysfunction, dysfunctional families differently than others. They come from a collectivist culture where their family and community plays a central role. Dysfunctional parents let their children know how burdening it has been to raise them. And I'm not arguing that any of these are, are inherently wrong, but it's uh, helpful to look at how culture is positioned, um, who is positioned as uh, what's positioned as a strength, what's positioned as a deficit, what's positioned as good, as bad, and what is something that is set, uh, what is something to aspire to. 
And then this last one, immigrant, immigrant parents moved to a foreign country to make their kids' lives better and easier. But when they packed their belongings and said goodbye to their own families, they forgot to leave the generational trauma and cultural toxicity in storage. So all of this generational trauma and cultural toxicity is really attributed to the space that they came from and not uh, the context of the space they're going to is completely removed. So the maybe the political and historical traumas that these colonial nations have been inflicting on these colonized spaces is completely forgotten. It's just something that's inherent to the places that they that folks come from. Um, so a lot of that context and the continued trauma um, that happens in these spaces is forgotten. And this is not to say like all of these accounts do great work. Uh, this is more just an investigation to seeing or yeah, maybe a thought exercise thinking about how culture is positioned in these spaces because there are there is also there are also great resources that they all provide. Um, and yeah, just to kind of maybe drive home my point, I turn to Ashley Yates in which they share it really is beautiful how my generation really ushered in an entirely different attitude around mental health. What's not beautiful, watching us turn around and shame the generations before us for their survival tactics and coping mechanisms. Um, yeah, I'll just leave you with that. Um, so I guess in thinking about this, um, not only are these tweets kind of functioning from a deficit-based model in which they showcase all the deficits that South Asian communities have, um, South Asian culture is particularly painted as a deficit. Um, but it's okay, they, they also posit that there's the solution and the solution is the idea of attaining mental health knowledge and educating those around us. So, and all of these accounts are run by folks who are second generation. So uh, as I defined it as folks who have one or more parent who was not born in Canada or the United States. So as second generation folks engage more with mental health discourse, they become the holders of this correct knowledge in which their parents or other folks who are not from or educated within the, within the West, um, those, those folks become the backwards people. So this kind of hierarchy is recreated. Um, again, in the diaspora. So as we, I'm also second generation. So as second generation folks, uh, the people who have access to this mental health knowledge, um, we can tell our parents all the ways in which they have been harmful and how their thoughts are backwards uh, and how we are, and yeah. And I guess here, the point I'm trying to make is not necessarily that what they say in these tweets are, are wrong and that they aren't harmful. So I'm not arguing, um, yeah, that real harm doesn't exist, but I'm trying to think about why the harm exists. So the reason for that harm and why oftentimes it's inherently South Asian or Punjabi or immigrant culture that is blamed for the for these harms. Um, and here, I guess, I think about, um, are we just doing the colonizers work for them now? As a second, as second generation folks really try to push and continue to push very hard uh, against how their parents and other elders are defining them um, without consulting them uh, in creating power dynamics of knowing instead of listening and being with empathy for each other. I'm wondering how we in these conversations and in this education are doing the exact same thing. Um, so I guess yeah, I, coming back to that question I had, are, are we simply doing the colonizers work for them? How helpful is this? That's kind of where I'm at and what I'm um, thinking about 
as I yeah, continue this work. So I thought it would be helpful to go back to the foundations of mental health discourse and psychiatry. So in its foundations, psychiatrists were ultimately responsible for labeling groups of social deviants. So people who deviated from the social norm, such as the poor, the working class, ethnic minorities, queer folks, unmarried mothers, and so on. Uh, in many different parts of the world at different times, psychiatry has been a tool in the colonizer's box of techniques differently, although sometimes simultaneously employed to control, to pacify, or eliminate Indigenous colonized and or enslaved people. So I'm asking, I guess, the uncomfortable question of whether psychiatry and related mental health disciplines can be both a tool for more traditional colonialism and a form of colonialism itself. So the interlacing histories of colonialism and psychiatry and their co their, the metaphors of um, savagery and madness may help us think through what this means for current forms of global psychiatry. And I think there's lots of stuff in there that I'm not having time to unpack, um, but that is just to, to share that there is, there is, it's not as simple as I've just painted it. So I'm thinking about the ways that psychiatry um, works as a site of colonial power, how mental health discourse works as a site of colonial power, or works in similar ways to colonialism in their in the pathologization and the individualization and the, the backwardization uh, of immigrant communities. And this isn't to say that psychiatry is like colonialism, not as in saying that all who are psychiatrized or engage in mental health discourse are simultaneously colonized, as this marginalizes the realities of those populations who have experienced both colonialism or colonization and and uh, engaged in psychiatry. Uh, and that's also not a singular category. All folks were not colonized in, in the same way. So also um, to make space for that, but to say that psychiatry was shaped by the form that colonialism took and the formations of colonialism relied in parts on the tools and modes of psychiatry. So I don't think I have time to go into, my, into this um, part fully. Um, and yeah, this is also just to say that this is a, a new observation that I'm making uh, and actually takes uh, the roots of Fanon's work are from psychiatry. So Fanon recognized that mental illness as they recognized it as a real experience that people endure, but he also offered an understanding of it as being influenced by society as well as culture. It opened the, the possibilities of linking madness to the intractable contradictions of colonial and post-colonial societies. Um, in doing so, Fanon tackled the quintessential question of the relationship between the individual and the social structure, especially when the social structure itself is oppressive. So for example, the suggested, suggestion that colonized people were primitive because they experienced mental illness uh, or mental health challenges through their bodily symptoms. Fanon didn't simply consider the body as a site for this regressed psychological functioning. Instead, he suggested that the body plays a pivotal role in the expression and structuring of the mind and helps to constitute us as human beings. So he ultimately viewed uh, institutionalized care as a model of disciplinary power in the regulation of people. He saw it as a mechanism of control directed at those who displayed an inability to manage oppressive colonial contexts. 
So moving into what mental health discourse looks like in Canada today um, and historically, mental health was introduced to Canada with colonialism. Today in Canada, the language and worldview that predominates in mental health service research and discourse still has its foundations in colonial thought, thought which involves inequitable assumptions about colonized people. Um, colonial conceptions of mental illness have always been closely uh, interrelated with the goals of colonialism itself, as I shared before. Um, biomedical practices and, ideology, and ideologies um, were used as justifications for colonization. So mental health care in Canada has historically been influenced by the goals and ideologies of colonialism, but it is not often acknowledged that these ideologies persist in the ways that mental health care is delivered today. So one assumption that shows through in, men in mental health literature is that immigrant cultures um, or folks who come from colonized spaces um, are somehow frozen in time or stuck in the past. Uh, there is this pervasive use of the term traditional um, to describe practices and knowledges. Uh, there is an implication that immigrant healing relies exclusively on the past, and it overlooks considerations of the development of new knowledge in these communities. Again, there is this negative view of difference. Uh, colonial conceptions of mental health uh, frequently involve the medicalization of difference or the creation of diagnoses based on a departure from what is what is uh, understood as the norm. Uh, it can be argued that Western society has no basis for defining mental illnesses other than through this perceived departure from normality, which is something I'm thinking about and um, hoping to unpack a little bit more. Um, and this can, I guess this can lead to problems when different groups of people have different norms or standards or different ways of defining illness. Um, again, I'm not arguing that mental illness and uh, mental health challenges do not exist. Uh, I'm just trying to grapple with these definitions and how these definitions came to be. So kind of bringing it back to immigrant communities, um, what I'm advocating for is uh, epistemic decolonization. So kind of going back to the how we how we think about things, how we say things, um, which implies a delinking from our the, from the Eurocentricism where a lot of our discourse comes from. So knowledge produced by Western subjects is considered to be superior to the knowledge produced by colonial subjects and are automatically considered as universally valid for all contexts and situations in the world. So one of the most pervasive myths re reproduced by Eurocentric social sciences is this myth of neutrality, um, of this universalist objective point of view. However, there is no neutrality in knowledge production. Many colonial migrants um, might fall in, might become ideologically co-opted by these dominant ideologies and epistemologies, and they tend to reproduce this, uh, to reproduce um, the discourse. So kind of what I'm trying to say in that is, as someone who is educated within this system that is founded on colonial thought and the idea that certain communities are uh, more progressive than others, that's what I'm taught. And that's kind of what I, I relay in my work, that there is a norm, that there is this 
universal neutrality that um, folks should be aspiring to. Uh, kind of, you should want to be more like those without culture, because those with culture, culture is often used as the scapegoat for why things might be bad. So what we aspire to is to be to be neutral, to be the norm, uh, and yeah, really thinking about what that norm is. Um, so I get in conclusion, I'll leave you with some key considerations. These come from a piece called Care as Colonialism um, from a journal, I believe, called Upping the Ante. I would highly, highly recommend it. Really thinking about um, being someone coming from a colonized space into uh, Canada, which is so-called Canada, which is uh, stolen land, which is also colonized land. So really, yeah, thinking about that relationship. So some questions that they leave us with um, include how do I as a caregiver, so someone who provides mental health care services, um, how do I grapple with the colonial baggage of the work I do? Am I a foot soldier of empire like those who coaxed once autonomous indigenous nations into the sphere of influence of a foreign power? As someone who personally recognizes the implications of that history, how do I, the ones colonized, engage in this reality of colonialism, um, rather than participate unquestioningly in institutions that remain wedded to the Indian Act? How do we move towards more liberatory care? And can we ask together what it means if the pathology is not so much our physiologies, but the psychologies that colonized us? So that's kind of what I'm grappling with, what I'm thinking about, what I'm sharing with you all, um, kind of just the readings and the thoughts that I've been going through post um, my MA and kind of as I start my work in the mental health care field. I guess I would leave us with kind of like, uh, yeah, maybe a little bit of a story um, in which uh, a friend of mine who works as a uh, translator was uh, with Punjabi communities, um, was sharing that a lot of the folks that he works with um, in Surrey, British Columbia specifically, they cancel their appointments all the time. Um, they're just a people that cancels, they cancel their appointments, but the Punjabis in Vancouver, they keep their appointments, they always show up to their appointments. So there was, and I, I really, I was, yeah, I wanted to pry, I wanted to push a little bit about why he thought that the folks in Surrey always canceled and why the people in Vancouver never canceled. They always showed up and they were both Punjab from Punjabi communities as he translates um, in Punjabi. Um, and he was just like, it's something about people in Surrey. It's just something about people in Surrey. It's inherent to what it means to be someone who lives in Surrey. Um, so I don't know the answer to that, why folks do that. I think there's a myriad of challenges, but again, there's this like hierarchy of folks from Vancouver who always show up to their healthcare appointments and folks from Surrey who always cancel just because they're like that. That's just something that they do, um, which is also seen as something negative. And of course, it impacts the work that you're able to do. But I guess I would push someone to approach folks um, with a little bit more empathy um, and indirect engagement and thinking about how systems impact that community and what's really stopping folks from, sorry, for, from attending their appointments. And maybe that didn't have anything to do with what I was sharing, but I think um, yeah, I think it, it forces us to delve a little deeper, think a little bit more about um, why some people would, I'm doing it too, why certain communities engage in certain practices that we consider um, 
yeah, we consider bad or backwards or bad. Um, yeah, that's some, and we attribute it to something that's inherent to them. Um, yeah, that's what I'm thinking about. That's all for me.